Today's reading is Matthew 2, verses 1 through 18. Oh, okay, there we go. (laughs) Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. God is not in control. Now, I'm sure the sermon title caught a lot of you off guard because God is not in control sounds like an abandonment of faith that someone would declare when suffering a great loss or experiencing a great tragedy. But don't worry, friends, I didn't choose the title because I've lost my faith. In fact, I found myself more desperately clinging to Jesus each day and especially this week. I chose the title to provoke you to thought. Because my desire today is to better clarify our faith. What do we believe about God and His role in this world? Because church family, after the events of this week, it bears reflection. If you're visiting with us this morning, things might seem a little bit subdued because we're hurting people. Because when one of our family members hurts, we hurt with them. And this week on Tuesday morning, December 19th, Maria Lily Petra McKay was born to Robin Esther McKay by emergency C-section. And everything had looked perfect 
up until that morning when something was clearly going wrong, prompting the surgery. And as of this moment, no one knows for certain whether Maria is going to live for days or weeks or years, but it's becoming clearer that her days will be filled with profound struggles. And this would be hard for any family to bear. However, we've walked through these struggles with this family before because in 2021, they lost their daughter Dorothy after only 21 days of life. So what do we say? What do we say at such a time? You know, too often in our well-meaning attempts to make sense of tragedy or comfort grieving people, we say things like, God is in control. In fact, we hear that phrase, God is in control, so often you might think that it's right out of the Bible. But interestingly, nowhere in the Scripture is that phrase, God is in control, ever appear. Moreover, the popular meaning of a phrase like God is in control might leave us misunderstanding God. You see, if you were to Google right now images for the word control, one of the first things that would pop up would be an image like this one. Now, for the uninitiated... This is a video game controller. And if you're playing a video game and you use this controller, then what happens on the screen in front of you is directly controlled by this controller. The character will do absolutely nothing on the screen except what you issue as commands through the, the controller. And when many hear the phrase, God is in control, this is essentially what they think of. That God's holding a controller directly causing every event that's causing this families suffering right now. You see, God is in control can be misunderstood as God is directly causing every birth defect, every car accident, every cancer diagnosis, every deadly tornado. In the account that Jacob read for us today, we might ask, did God take his controller and press the smite button so that the armies of Herod would kill all the children in Bethlehem that night? Smite, 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 smite. Matthew does make clear that the slaughter of the children in Bethlehem was foretold through the prophet Jeremiah. Matthew chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. When Herod realized he'd been duped by the Magi, he ordered the death of all the children two years old or under. And in a small, sparsely populated town like Bethlehem, that would have been 12 to 20 children. So 12 to 20 children lost their lives for no other reason than the paranoia of a megalomaniacal king. But don't worry, God is in control. Are you saying that God was up there pressing the button? making Herod slaughter these children and leaving these families devastated. Thus, the title of my sermon, God is not in control, at least not as we popularly might understand control. You see, this morning we, un- we struggle with the incomprehensibility of our suffering, so I want to offer you a more biblical word to understand God. Better than saying God is in control, let us say God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And you might immediately say, Adam, that's semantics. You're just swapping one word for another, potato, potato. However, I will argue that sovereignty and control are different words and different concepts. 
Sovereignty and control are not just interchangeable. To, to illustrate the difference between sovereignty and control, let's consider King Charles III. Besides being the King of England, King Charles III is also king over other countries, such as Canada. And if you go to the Canadian government's official website, it reads, Canada is a constitutional monarchy whereby the sovereign is Canada's head of state. King Charles III automatically became sovereign of Canada on the passing of his predecessor, Queen Elizabeth II. So King Charles is sovereign over Canada, but he doesn't control the country. There's a prime ministry. There is other local government officials elected by the people. There are the people themselves all charged with doing the will of the sovereign. And the king being sovereign has the power to intervene at any moment. However, does Charles control Canada? Now, don't press this analogy too far trying to apply it to humanity's relationship with God. I'm simply offering you that analogy to say that there's a difference between the word control and the word sovereign. That's all I'm illustrating. The Bible regularly and repeatedly affirms God is sovereign over all things and his purposes will stand. What I'm arguing today is that the word control is just too simple. It's too simple to describe the mystery of God's involvement with his creation. Sovereignty is a biblical word, a biblical concept, and that better acknowledges God and the mystery of his interaction with his creation. And why is this so important to discuss on a day like today? Because when we come to a tragedy like happened in today's passage with the slaughter of these innocents, when we come to a tragedy like what's unfolding right now in the life of the McKays, when we come to anything that might have happened or be about to happen in your own life, how do we understand God's involvement? Friends, to say that God is sovereign doesn't make him guilty for the sin of Herod slaughtering the innocents at Bethlehem. To say God is sovereign doesn't make him the one who starts every pebble rolling that begins every avalanche. To say God is sovereign doesn't say that God is the one who personally mutates every healthy cell into a cancer cell. To say that God is sovereign recognizes the mystery of the relationship between creator and his creation. See, creation was created free to operate according to the laws and design of God, which were good. Humanity was made to act in free conformity to the goodwill of the Creator. Whether in the created order was made to act in conformity to the good design of the Creator. The human body was free to act, reproduce, and heal in conformity to the wise design and patterns established by our Creator God. But in Genesis 3, sin and rebellion entered the, root of the world. And humanity's freedom was now used in rebellion against and opposition to God. Sin entered. Whether in created order, no longer perfectly submitted to the good design of the Creator, so disaster entered the world. The human body no longer perfectly acted, reproduced, healed, grew in conformity to the healthy patterns established by God, so sickness, mutation, and deformity entered this world. The freedom which God gave His creation now acts in rebellious and destructive ways. Sin, sickness, disaster, and death are part of our world and so often part of our lives. And you might say, well, if creatures in creation are thus free to rebel, does that mean God the Creator is no longer sovereign? 
friends, throughout the Scripture, we find the mystery of God's sovereignty woven throughout Scripture. You might remember that in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, there was a young man named Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers because of their jealousy. He was wrongly accused by his master's wife and he was imprisoned. He was forgotten by a man he helped and he languished in jail for years. Tragedy after tragedy, loss after loss. And then by God's providence, Joseph was exalted to the number two position in all of Egypt. He was given wisdom by God so that he might save the lives of hundreds of thousands of people when a famine devastated the entire known world. And afterwards, when Joseph finally confronted his brothers about selling him into slavery, Joseph famously declared to them in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Friends, the exact same word is used in both parts of that statement. He says to his brothers, you meant evil. God meant good. You were free to act exactly as you wanted to. And you had an evil purpose in all of your actions. However, God still got exactly what God designed. From the very beginning, God had a good purpose. Why? Because God is sovereign. How could it be that Joseph's brothers were completely free, uncompelled, doing exactly the evil they desired, and thus fully responsible for all of their actions, yet God still accomplished his good purposes? The mystery of God's sovereignty. Or consider that when the Lord sent Moses to lead his people from slavery in Egypt, at the center of the entire narrative of the ten plagues is the heart of the king Pharaoh. Throughout the account, we find repeated statements like we find in Exodus chapter 9. Exodus 9.12, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. But then just a few verses later in the same chapter, chapter 9, verse 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Pharaoh is identified as responsible and culpable for his actions. He freely sinned. He freely hardened his heart. Pharaoh did exactly what Pharaoh wanted to do. And yet at the same time, the Lord accomplished exactly what the Lord intended to accomplish. Because verse 12 tells us this was exactly as the Lord had spoken it to Moses ahead of time. The mystery of God's sovereignty. Or consider the sermon that the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Peter stood before the crowd and he boldly declared to them in Acts chapter 2 verse 23, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Peter declares God's sovereign. Jesus being handed over to be crucified was part of God's deliberate and sovereign plan. But you notice he doesn't absolve those who participated of Jesus' death. Peter declares you freely did what you wanted to do. You put him to death. You nailed him to the cross. We are free. And God is sovereign. So we creatures, we operate, and the creation operates freely, which means we often operate in sinful and wrong ways. 
Human sin, whether destroys the human body, can become broken or malformed or fails to heal. We are all free to perform or not perform as designed, yet God remains sovereign over all and will accomplish His purposes regardless. Now friends, saying God is sovereign means nothing happens apart from His permission. However, I fear the phrase God is in control, at least as it's popularly understood in our culture, oversimplifies the mystery of God's sovereign action in our world. Because if God is in control, why are the McKays in the hospital again with another infant daughter? I fear that phrases like God's in control oversimplifies and risk pushing us away if we somehow think that God is the perpetrator, the doer of evil and sin. However, confessing the mystery of sovereignty invites us to fall into God when our pain is too much and makes no sense to us. Sovereignty invites us to come to God crying, this makes no sense, it hurts so much. Why should this couple be in this hospital again with another infant daughter? Suffering seemingly senselessly, it makes no sense. And sovereignty invites us to lament the brokenness of this creation, the brokenness of our bodies, the reality of our suffering. Sovereignty allows us to say, God, I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand why it's happening. I know this creation is not as it should be. But I also know that you're sovereign and you're good. Now understand in saying all this, I'm not saying that things just happen. That God is somehow powerless to prevent because, again, nothing can happen apart from God's sovereign permission. Neither am I saying that God is just some cosmic watchmaker who created, wound the clock, and then left everything to run according to natural laws. Because we read throughout the pages of Scripture, our sovereign God can and does intervene in His creation. However, that leaves us asking, so why doesn't he just intervene every time? Why didn't he intervene for the McKays? Why doesn't God intervene to avert every tragedy? Why doesn't he intervene to stop every sinful action? Why doesn't he intervene to prevent every disease and every malady? Friends, understand that for our lives and our decisions to have meaning, we need to live in a world that generally, if not perfectly, operates according to regular laws and patterns, cause and effect, actions and consequences. For example, if every time someone walked off a cliff, she just hung there in the air and didn't fall like Wiley Coyote in The Roadrunner, then the idea of gravity would be meaningless. And your choices around gravity would be meaningless because there'd be no consequence to any of your choices. If every time someone stole your property, it just magically reappeared where it had been taken, then stealing would be meaningless. Your actions would be meaningless because there was no consequence. You couldn't meaningfully affect your world for right or for wrong. If every time I yelled, I hate you, all that person heard was, I love you. My words would be meaningless. For this world to have any meaning, for us to be free, there must be cause and effect. There must be consequences and actions. The world must operate according to regular and predictable laws and patterns. So if God stepped in every time and prevented all tragedy, removed all consequences of our actions, we wouldn't be free. Because we couldn't make meaningful decisions. Because we couldn't know or predict the outcome of those actions. We'd be powerless to affect our world in any way, good or bad. 
So God in His wisdom allows both creature and creation to operate freely. And as such, He doesn't always intervene as He has in the past or as He could. And that leaves us asking why. Why would God choose to intervene in one situation but not another? Why would He prevent one tragedy but not another? Why would He heal one person but not another? And friends, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know why one suffers and another escapes. We don't know why one sickens and another recovers. We don't know why one lives and one dies. As one pastor said, God allows in his wisdom what he could prevent by his power. God allows in his wisdom what he could prevent by his power. And we may never understand why God allows or why God prevents, but we know the Lord is accomplishing his sovereign purposes. For example, in today's account, God intervened, sending an angel to warn Mary and Joseph to flee. Why didn't God send an angel to any of the other parents in Bethlehem that night? We don't know. And there are going to be many times in our lives when we're going to be left asking, where was the angel warning us to flee? Why are we left like Rachel, inconsolably weeping and loudly lamenting that our children are no more? That our husband or wife is no more. That our health is no more. That our prodigal is no more. That my marriage is no more. That my innocence is no more. That my peace is no more. Friends, today's passage offers no illumination as to why God did not intervene for those families. And this passage offers us no insight as to why you might be left lamenting and weeping like the families in Bethlehem that night. But Scripture does reveal to us God's sovereign purpose in revealing, in sparing Jesus that day. Friends, God sovereignly intervened to save Jesus that day. Understand that Jesus was rescued from Herod so that one day he could be delivered to Pontius Pilate. Jesus was delivered from Bethlehem that day so that he might be delivered to Jerusalem where he would die on a cross. That an angel came to deliver the baby Jesus, but friends, no angels came to rescue Jesus as he hung on the cross in utter humiliation and agony, bearing your sins upon himself. Understand that God delivered his son from the cradle so that one day he might deliver him to the cross. Jesus was spared the tragedy in Bethlehem that night that he might endure an even greater tragedy in Jerusalem and so that we might be saved according to God's sovereign plan. God was sovereignly accomplishing his purpose to save you and me through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. Undeterred by our sin and rebellion, unhindered by the brokenness of our bodies or this creation, God is sovereignly accomplishing all of his purposes. And friends, understand that the ultimate good news, the ultimate purpose of God is the end of sin. It's the ultimate end of the brokenness of this creation. The ultimate end of the brokenness of our bodies. The end of death itself. Because through Jesus Christ, God is making all things new. Church, you've heard me say so many times. But it's worth repeating again. The good news is not about a miracle. It's about resurrection. 
The good news is not just a miracle, it's resurrection. While we know that God does sovereignly and miraculously intervene into our broken creation, we also know that His interventions, all of His miracles are only temporary fixes. Friends, every person that Jesus intervened to miraculously feed eventually got hungry again. Every person that Jesus intervened to miraculously heal eventually got sick again. Even the people that Jesus intervened to miraculously raise from the dead eventually died again. A miracle is only a temporary intervention. And God's ultimate plan, friends, His ultimate purpose is not for mere temporary interventions, but for an eternal resurrection. Church, we were never promised miracles or interventions in this life, but we who've trusted Christ are promised a resurrection in the next life. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Not just temporary, but eternal. The good news is that all who have been called by and trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will one day rise, no longer subject to sickness or weakness or sin, no longer possessing infirmities, deformities, or vulnerabilities. We will rise eternally new. And Scripture tells us that on that day the trumpet shall sound and the Lord shall return. And Revelation 21, 3-5 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Church, at this time, the Lord does not always intervene to prevent every tragedy, to heal every infirmity, or restore completely. And why the Lord intervenes in one situation and not in another, we will never know. But what we do know, and what we look forward to, is God's ultimate and sovereign purpose will be accomplished. And that purpose is that one day all things are going to be made new. One day there'll be a resurrection. One day the broken creation is going to be perfectly restored. One day our broken bodies are going to be perfectly restored. One day sin and tragedy and death will be no more. That's our hope. However, this Christmas season we recognize that it's not yet that day. And so Christmas reminds us to wait. In church family, we wait for that day and we long for that day and hope. And while we wait that day, this day, we also mourn and grieve because our pain and the pain of those that we love is so real and it's so great. And we don't understand the pain of the McKays just as we often don't understand our own pain or suffering. Friends, it just makes no sense. So we grieve and we pray along with the McKays. We grieve our own losses and we cling in hope to our sovereign God, our hope is what we sang this morning. Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? But you know, friends, you know all the dark won't stop the light from getting through. And do you wish, do you wish you could see it all made new? 
we do. We do, and friends, we will. We will see it all made new one day. God will sovereignly see to that. Let's pray. Father, we don't understand. We don't understand your ways. We don't understand your actions. But we believe you are sovereign. And we believe you are good. We know your purposes will prevail. And we know that one day death and suffering and crying and pain will be no more. And Father, we long for that day. And until that day, sustain us in hope. Sustain those who grieve in hope. Hold them. Hold them fast. And somehow, by your power and your sovereignty, bring yourself glory now and forevermore. Amen.